Is the Iran nuclear deal finally dead or just on hold for a little while longer? Queen Elizabeth dies, the Jewish community weighs in. And our special guest this week, Heather Johnston of the U.S.-Israel Education Association. Don't push pause. You're listening to Jewish Insider's Limited Liability Podcast. And welcome back to Jewish Insider's Limited Liability Podcast. I'm Rich Goldberg. And I'm Jared Bernstein. Jared, we have a great show ahead uh, with Heather Johnston, who we'll get to in just a couple of minutes. But we do have some big news items uh, to discuss. One, we we thought we were on the verge of an Iran nuclear deal. Uh, The Biden administration was notifying Congress, was uh, putting around talking points to the media, to their supporters uh, outside of government to start uh, talking about the benefits of the nuclear deal as they see it. And then right at the goal line, it looks like, uh, the Iranians uh, pull back, uh, described by some not just as one step backward, but five steps backward on a range of issues under discussion. And the big question mark now being, is this a play to simply hold out until after the midterm elections where they think they'll get more concessions from the Biden administration to an already sweet deal? Or is it possible they're just not that into you, as they would say, Uh, the Iranian supreme leader... (laughs) Uh, not wanting to do a deal, just dragging the United States along while the centrifuges keep spinning, uh, and uh, in fact, time for a plan B and to abandon uh, this track of negotiations. Jared, your thoughts? Well, I think, you know, listen, Rich, I've said this all along, that until there's a deal, there's not a deal, and I think people should not underestimate Joe Biden, who has always been um, in democratic circles. He's always been a hawk on Iran, and at the end of the day, he's gonna. He knows he's gonna have to stake his presidency on the outcome of this deal in the in the five and ten and fifteen year time horizon. President Biden is is a guy who has been around long enough to understand the arc of history and how he will be judged. And I think that any deal uh, that is put in front of him for his thumbs up or thumbs down is gonna have to pass what he believes is the test of history. And I think people really should not discount that. Uh, I've been saying it all along and I'll say it again today that there will, you know, he, he knows he will be judged by this deal and as a, uh, you know, will will act accordingly. Uh, I, that's a lot of credit given to the president because all evidence so far, uh, I don't see. And certainly if that's what's in his brain, uh, which could be what he thinks of himself and, and what he thinks he's doing. I, I don't think that's what the Iranians perceive at this point. We've gone over a year and a half where Chinese imports of Iranian oil have skyrocketed. There's no meaningful crackdown on Chinese imports, you know, going up the ladder to state-owned enterprises, really putting the screws to Beijing to stop these imports. Uh, so from a sanctions enforcement perspective, we're doing very, very little. There are these scattered times where the Treasury Department will roll something out to appear to be doing something and to sort of threaten the Iranians. We could enforce sanctions. Look at this. We found a network. We've announced sanctions once a month on some low-level network uh, of sanctions evasion. We could go back to maximum pressure, right? It's like the Iranians get it. They're not stupid. They know that you're actually not doing maximum pressure right now. And then when they go ahead and attack American forces in Syria, we see the Pentagon do a press conference to say, listen, our response was very precise. We drew up targets and we we methodically waited to see that nobody was there so nobody could get hurt in these targets. And we sent a clear message to Iran that we don't want to hurt you. We just needed to send a couple missiles into Syria to a couple of camps that were abandoned. 
so that we couldn't escalate, we wouldn't escalate, we could still have this nuclear deal. I mean, if you're Iran, you're looking at a very incredible picture of weakness from the United States, so desperate for a deal, all the concessions already made on the table on sanctions relief for the IRGC, terrorism sanctions going away, the amount of money they're willing to give up in sanctions relief, the IAEA probe willing to sort of be taking a backseat to this nuclear deal already from the administration, not far enough, by the way, for the Iranians who want to close completely. Just getting billions of dollars while it's still open isn't enough. So, uh, you know, if, if Joe Biden was serious about getting a good deal, there's an obvious way to do that. And that is the snapback of U.N. Security Council Resolution 2231. Why do we keep negotiating with the Iranians while the sunsets of the old deal are still in place? Get rid of the sunsets. You do that at the Security Council. Snap back. Sunsets are gone. Restrictions are back. Reset the table. The Iranians have taken this administration to the cleaners for 18 months. They've regained all their leverage. They're standing at the threshold for nuclear weapons capability. They're at a near zero breakout time. Reset the clock. Reset it. I mean, listen, Rich, I think it, you're, you're, we're being somewhat naive in, in, in looking at this issue in a vacuum. We're talking about China. China's related to Russia. Russia's related to Ukraine. I think there's value in not having the Chinese actively engaged in that conflict. And I think, you know, it's a, a game of three-dimensional chess. And, and, you know, there's not, no issues are isolated. The world is too small these days to say one issue, uh, you know, is is uh, is not related to the other. But, I mean, we're going to keep talking about this. I agree with right? you. I agree with you. By the way, no, I, that is a great... I agree with you, Jared. Uh, Josh Rogan uh, just had a column in the Washington Post uh, a few days ago where he talks about a new axis that Vladimir Putin is building. Uh, Russia, China, Iran, North Korea, right? Yeah, but I think, I think China is the one that doesn't belong because China's oh. hegemony, uh, and again... Uh, you know, I am far from a China scholar, but it is just as much of an economic and like uh, strength that that China is as as interested or more interested in economic might than they are in the the Russia, North Korea, Iran. Uh, you know, call it nineteenth century. We need to control land type of might. Does that? Does, I mean, I think that that you know that's what doesn't belong if, if we're talking about an axis here. That China is just you know they have just as much skin in the game in the Western economy as we do. Well, they're controlling land through economic coercion, right? right? But that, it's that's, not that's it's, the whole idea of the Belt and Road Initiative, and Iran is part now of their Belt and Road Initiative, their strategic partnership that they've agreed to with Putin. Uh, is is cemented. We we never thought we would see the the level of cooperation between the Chinese and Russians. I think a lot of our paradigms are shifting here, right? I think people said, "Oh, the Russians and the Iranians, they don't really trust each other." It's a, you know, Putin just and wants they, to make some money. Like, let's just be clear, they don't, but, but they that, may have but, common but interests. But is that at true anymore? Is that really true anymore? I think I think all these paradigms are shifting. Uh, anyways, we will you know what? Let's schedule a guest on this. Let's get a couple of guests. We'll, we, yeah, will, we, yeah. will, we will get to this. We will get also, to this. Also, okay. uh, uh, let's, let's talk to about mark, yeah. Let's talk to about mark the, the passing of the queen. Uh, Ninety six years old, Queen Elizabeth, monarch for seventy years. Started off, uh, she was actually a mechanic. Uh, with the Royal Army during World War II, repaired jeeps. Uh, really an incredible figure, but, but led Great Britain through uh, often tumultuous times. Uh, everything from, you know, 
decolonization, to use to use a buzzword, right? Uh, Britain's empire uh, really shrinking to near nothing. The Falklands War, uh, a changing world. I think it's thirteen prime ministers she went through, including the most recent one this week. Yeah, uh, and, unbelievable. And uh, a cordial, but not always uncomplicated relationship with the Jewish community. Um, I urge people to read the writings of the late chief rabbi, Lord Jonathan Sachs, who had a lot to say on this topic. Um, but she'll be missed, for and, sure. And, and the new chief rabbi of the United Kingdom uh, releasing a prayer on the passing of Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth. Uh, wonderful. You, you, can, you can find it online. I'll just read a couple of passages. We, members of this holy congregation, together with all the communities of the United Hebrew Congregations of the Commonwealth, deeply mourn the passing of our Sovereign Lady, Queen Elizabeth II, who has gone to her eternal rest. May you grant Her Majesty, Queen Elizabeth II, perfect rest forevermore under the protective cover of your divine wings. And let us say, Amen. 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 All right, let's get to our guest uh, this week, Heather Johnston, founder and executive director of the U.S.-Israel Education Association. For over a decade, Heather has led dozens of trips to Israel, business leaders, sports celebrities, members of Congress, and other distinguished guests. Her board includes one of our recent guests, Bruce Pearl, head coach of the Auburn men's basketball team. Heather attended Auburn, studying communications, and completed her Master's of Theology at Beast and Divinity School in Birmingham, Alabama. Heather, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Richard. Appreciate that. It's so good to be with you. Yeah, no, great to have you on. Uh, first and foremost, why don't you tell us what is the U.S. Israel Education Association? Well, I founded this organization um, with the intent of being able to um, educate senior members of Congress um, and to serve them um, toward a strong U.S. Israel collaboration and to help them to discover their lanes of action and ways they can lead inside that collaboration. Well, we, I, I'll, I'll just jump in there and say, you know, we, it sounds a lot like APAC. Um, so what, what, maybe tell us a little bit about what, what makes you unique? What's, what's different uh, about your organization? Yeah. Well, what we've done um, and, and have worked out the arrangement with APAC is that we are taking the senior leaders of the U.S. Um, House and Senate um, APAC takes the freshman congressmen to um, Israel on their sort of 101 tours. Um, there was a gap in, in education. If you've been in Congress a decade or five years, 10 years, there's a gap in the education process. And I worked with Eric Cantor back in 2010 and 2011. He was the majority leader of the Congress at that time. And we um, he helped me establish the organization and to... Um, bring send the members on my tours. Eric Cantor, by the way, a former Jewish Insider Limited Liability podcast guest. That's yes. true. That's uh, true. One of our wow. guests, uh, I think, in season one. So, yeah, to, so Heather, let me to ask the you that. that we've had seasons. That's yes, right. That's right. Yeah, we get to yeah, say yeah. we have a new season whenever we want. It's very that's liberating. Right. Heather, who's involved? Who's your base? Uh, is it the the Jewish community? Is it the Christian community? Is it all of the above? Is it none of the above? Obviously, it's not a religious organization, um, but but who are, who's the base? Well, we have a it's a bipartisan organization, so we're not lobbying. We're not trying to um, move issues to the right or to the left. It's really staying in the middle and bringing um, both Democrats and Republicans um, into the collaboration on things they can work on together. That's part of our base. 
And then secondly, it's a wide Jewish and Christian audience that care about this. Um, so we have a broad base um, of, you know, Jews and Christians in the United States pr- primarily, but also in other parts of the world and, and certainly in Israel. Rich and I talk a lot about the uh, sad uh, partisan push to make Israel a partisan issue, whether it's mm-hmm. the squad on the left or it's isolationists on the right. Uh, you know, b- both parties have have some uh, folks not to be so proud of as it relates to uh, mm-hmm. U.S. Israel relations. How do you how do you confront both of those things uh, as we move you know, into more and more complicated waters, um, you know, politically in America, where people other than Rich and I are are not so interested in talking to one another. Yes. Well, it, it does seem, and, and we've been at this now for about 14 years. So it's been, you know, a lengthy process of dealing with exactly what you're saying. And I think um, that the best that we can hope for in that divide is to look for ways to bring members of Congress together and leaders together from both sides of the aisle to work on those common goals. For example, the Abraham Accords um, should be a bipartisan issue, and there's a, there's a lot of ways to make it a bipartisan issue. Uh, missile defense um, is in the best interest of the United States, um, just across the board. If you're an American, you need Israel as the aircraft carrier in the Middle East, a strong Israel. Well, I know that some of these can sort of go sideways with the extremes, um, but I would just say let let our hearts be encouraged that mostly Congress is in support of Israel. Um, we're standing uh, with a, a, a strong uh, U.S. House and Senate that care about Israel, and certainly with certain administrations that come and go, it's stronger. We can take notice of that. But I think that um, everybody needs to focus on those things that can come together and where we can work together. There's obviously a proliferation of groups in the space these days working both with the Jewish community and with uh, Christian supporters of Israel. You know, we, we talked a little about APAC, obviously, the, the, the behemoth. But, you know, KUFI, Philos Project, mm-hmm. Passages, you know, a lot of different organizations out there. Where do you see, besides those trips, uh, and, I, and I, I, I take that point, that is a, a gap that you're filling. I like that. Um, what, are the, what are the other sort of activities where you see you're creating a space where there are gaps? Mm-hmm. You know, what, what are you working on where nobody else is doing that, that has you stand okay. out? Okay. Yeah, I think that's, that's important, and thank you for the question. Um, what we did is we um, established the first ever trips through the West Bank. So if you can imagine, the U.S. State Department w- did not allow U.S. officials to cross the Green Line into a Jewish community inside the West Bank or Judea and Samaria. And so we started those tours. And why is that important? Well, it has brought to light an entirely different narrative than what's been reported in the news and even on Capitol Hill. When you can take a congressman or a senator to see it for themselves to actually see industrial zones and businesses where Palestinians and Israelis are working together. You can interview for yourself and see down in the Hebron business community where the Palestinian GDP is produced predominantly 55%. Um, 
and interview the business leaders down there and find that 90% want to or are working with Israelis. Well, these are really important things to, to do inside of a tour like that. They're fact-finding for members of Congress. Um, as an example, we brought to the fore the education on the Hill on the incitement to terror um, that was being funded by the U.S. government. Um, inside the kindergartens and soccer teams, U.S. Israel Education Association brought that education to the Hill. Nobody had ever heard of it. We confronted it. We proved and showed them how U.S. funding was going toward that. And that began that process of defunding the Palestinian Authority. So that's an example. We've brought to the fore um, the understanding and the growing movement inside of the West Bank between Palestinians and Israelis um, uh, that where they're joining in business together um, across the board. You've got, you know, just on one platform alone called the Judea Samaria Chamber of Commerce, founded by Sheikh Ashraf Jabri, who has 40,000 family members living in Hebron, um, formed the, the Judea Samaria Chamber of Commerce with Avi Zimmerman, a, a Jewish businessman. And now they have more than 750 businesses just on that platform alone joint businesses between Palestinians and Israelis. Well, this is a paradigm shift for a congressman, a U.S. official who's never been introduced to anything like that. It has had an impact so much so that legislation um, and, and the policy changed between um, Democrats and Republicans on the Hill and the way of supporting and coalescing around. And legislation was passed with bipartisan support to change the way U.S. investment is put into the West Bank. So part of that investment now is going to Jewish communities, not just Palestinian, um, to, to further joint business between Palestinians and Israelis. So Heather, let me ask you this. We, we did a little bit of research. We see on your website you have an education director who's an actual rocket scientist. Yeah. Uh, who, who worked in design and development of missile technology. That's pretty mm -hmm. cool. What's the connection? How does how does a actual mm -hmm. rocket scientist end up working in the field of U.S.-Israel yeah. relations? Well, it's a great story. Um, Ari Sasher, who was the former chief engineer, um, systems engineer for Iron Dome and helped develop Iron Dome. Um, we took the first group of U.S. House Armed Services members to go see Iron Dome back in 2011. It was just coming onto the stage. Nobody had ever seen it from the United States. And um, I approached Prime Minister, then Pr Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu at the time, as we were in a meeting, and he was asking where, we're, where we were going next. And I said, we need to go see the Iron Dome. I've got the five chairmen here on Armed Services. And so he whispered into the ear of his national security advisor and um, his chief of staff, and they declassified Iron Dome overnight. So we, we went rumbling over um, the Judean wilderness out to see the very first Iron Dome installation. And that is where I met Ari Sasher. And we began um, sort of a uh, partnership together in doing the education on the hill um, so we, we advanced um, Iron Dome through education. Uh, we took those five members. They brought together 54 members of Congress when they, on, on their return. They were so flabbergasted by Iron Dome. And they said, we got to fund this. This is our 
chance to really secure Israel um, in our American interests. So within two and a half months, it passed the House and Senate and was signed by President Obama, um, increasing the budget three times um, from $230 million to $690 million. And that began the collaboration at a whole different level. So we have worked together, Ari Sasher and I have now for the last, I guess, 13 years on this, doing education on the Hill. He is the chief educator um, for the missile system, you know, systems uh, between the United States and Israel on Capitol Hill, and he works for me. There's a T-shirt out there. When I was at Johns Hopkins, I had friends actually who worked at NASA in the rocket science program, mm -hmm. and it says NASA on the front, and on the back it says, it is rocket science. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I, was, I was just saying. All right, sidebar there, Rich. You had a you had you no, had a no, thoughtful no, question. I, no, I, it, it's interesting to me um, as we talk about the evolution of the politics uh, of the relationship with Israel and the regional differences that can occur. We we sometimes forget about where our own military industrial base is located for certain key elements of our own national security, mm -hmm. and I think about Huntsville. Uh, and yeah. I think about the incredible connection and just clicking in your head of the values that we share. If you are yeah. in a community working to support the U.S. missile systems, mm -hmm. missile systems that are also supporting Israel in joint cooperation, uh, and then taking that understanding and bridging that on Capitol Hill to what you're working on, I would imagine that there's a difference really in, in connecting and in, in, in sort of the I got it from, you know, you know, you had me at hello for certain members of Congress, for certain communities in the United States, as opposed to others. I don't know if you sort of see that in, in, in how you operate. You do, absolutely. And you've got members of Congress who have parts and and pieces to the to the missile defense cooperation between the United States and Israel. And boy, they carry the day. It matters. Um, you know, if you're if you're the, if you're the congressman from Huntsville. Well, that matters, obviously. So, and Huntsville's in my backyard. I'm from Birmingham. So um, we, we're very proud out of our state to be hosting one of the larger um, entities to that uh, collaboration. All politics is local, right? <laughs> it is. <laughs> That's fascinating. I want to back up a little bit because we, 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 we moved on, I think, maybe a little too quick. And this is, you know, I, I don't believe what, I, what I'm going to say, but I'm going to do it for, for counter um, devil's advocate type, type questions. You know, the historic nature of what you described of uh, being able to pioneer trips for members of Congress into mm -hmm. Judea and Samaria, into the West Bank, uh, and have those kind of interactions authorized by the State Department. A, I'm curious if they're still authorized by the State Department today and, and under the Biden administration. I know there was some pullback in some of the funding and mm -hmm. grants that were that were turned on during the Trump administration, especially in REL. Um, and and B, you know, there's there's a lot of mainstream Jewish community folks who they're just afraid of touching the issue, right? It's it they they feel mm -hmm. like it's it's controversial. It's it's where the debate over territories and settlements is, and and I and I don't want to I don't want to go there, you know. But but you're embracing it, so I'd, I'd love for you to kind of touch on: um, is it still happening under this administration? And do you have any sense of controversy around your work? Do do you do you think about that, or do you see Democrats saying I I want to go there too? Yes. 
No, we have um, um, Democrats and Republicans both coming on our tour. And the truth of the matter is, if you're a congressman today, a responsible one, you want to go in that area and understand it. If the United States is going to broker a peace plan and we're going to be in the future negotiations and stay involved, then as leaders of our government, you need to understand it. To not go there or just to go to Ramallah on a visit, which is what it used to be, um, is to short circuit the process and, and to miss the narrative. So um, to, to answer your other point, we privately fund our tours. We have decided at the beginning, you could not cross the green line under State Department rules. We were able to privately um, finance the tours to be able to do that. And as time went along, as you saw um, Trump administration come in, they eased those rules. They changed the language with the State Department. None of that has changed, by the way. The State Department, that language has not changed back to what it was. It's going to be hard to change it back. But... Um, due to the fact that we have, you know, vacillating governments coming in and out, we have continued to keep our organization uh, privately funded for those tours. Um, it's in our best interest to be able to take members of Congress. We by now are experts on the subject matter, where to go, who to meet with, so that they're getting a very cross, um, you know, cultural experience as they go through there and they meet with mayors and they meet with um, the leaders of the Palestinian communities. And so they're getting a, a very diverse viewpoint. So, so let me ask you this. Are, is, are they, do you ever get members who maybe sort of tack more left on this issue, who are interested in coming uh, and doing the, the Jewish parts of Judea and Samaria quietly? Uh, I mean, I'm not thinking members of the squad, mm -hmm. but I'm thinking like squad adjacent. Obviously, yeah. <laughs> the, squ the squad's not coming, um, but right. but I, I, you can imagine, uh, and I'm not I'm not calling this person out, but like you can imagine the Jerry Nadlers of mm -hmm. the world, right? Yeah, who are squad adjacent, probably uh -huh. left of left of Rich's politics. I I don't know a ton about your politics, but left of many people in the pro Israel movement, but not the squad, and and maybe more interested in that kind of. Do you ever get that? I mean, I'm not asking you to talk out of school and name names, but because mm -hmm. I feel like that would be the most valuable is exposing people, well, it, you know, yeah. they're out of their comfort zone. Mm -hmm. It is. And I think that everybody's a little bit out of their comfort zone to go into the West Bank because it's it's new, it's novel um, that our, our U.S. leadership would go through there, um, but how critically important it is. And so if you if the response across the board, um, and this is good for your listening audience to understand that, if you're a congressman today, whether you're a Democrat to the far left or you're a, a Republican to the far right, when you see Palestinians and Israelis in the workforce together, when you see and hear testimonies from Palestinians that they want to and are actually in joint business with, with Israelis and that their income is three times what it was, that is music to the ears of any human being that cares about people. When it comes down to it, Palestinians want success and prosperity. They want to be able to trust their institutions. They want to have business. They want to pass on inheritance to their children, just like anybody else does. They are regular folk. And for the most part, the, the papers reveal the, you know, the activists and, and, and radical elements all the time, but that's not the average Palestinian. 
So whether you're, you know, a Democrat or Republican to come on my tour, you're going to get to see the regular folk, interview them and understand where the movements are taking place and where you've got large tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of Palestinians today now inside the workplace with Israelis. Heather, we've seen some news interviews uh, where you've been advocating about moving our medical supply chain, especially the pharmaceutical supply chain, out of China into the Middle East, uh, near shoring, I think you call it. Maybe talk a little bit about that issue, uh, how you came to it, and and what exactly Mm -hmm. uh, you're looking at there. Yeah, well, I think all of us um, went through COVID-19, right? It was such a difficult season, and it um, it was so befuddling and chaotic and churning. And one of those areas that was so destabilizing, we're still feeling the effects of it today, are the change in our supply lines, the cut to our supply lines, the inability to get certain products. And the biggest and most dangerous of those was the pharmaceutical and life sciences supply chain. Um, There were critical and still are today critical Um, you know, components to our medications uh, from aspirin to contrast solution for an MRI that if you went out today to try to go get an MRI, you may or may not have contrast solution for your MRI today. Um, Those are things that um, have challenged the average lawmaker and are challenging the average American today as well. So it was was a, a natural born thought to to consider how might we now, with a new Middle East, Abraham Accord nations now joining a nexus um, with the United States and Israel, a staging ground, if you will. Everybody's getting along today in the Middle East. To, I mean, not everybody, but these big Gulf states are. Is there a way to take some of our uh, critical supply chains, pharmaceutical industry, and move out of China? Can Congress incentivize that uh, toward our friendly nations, toward um, Morocco, Bahrain, toward the UAE, who has an incredible amount of medical research, clinical trial ability, uh, Morocco being a staging ground in the Middle East for manufacturing. Um, There's a lot of potential for that. And so we have brought that um, education to the Hill for Congress and are doing the background um, uh, writing and research on all of these nations um, to be able to uh, be able to further explain why this is so important that we consider this for the future. So you co-founded a center in Ariel to bring Arabs and Israelis together. Tell us a little bit about that project. Um, we um, about 23 years ago, my husband and I got involved with the nation of Israel. It was during the time of the Russian Aliyah. Um, Russian Jews were pouring into Israel in the 1990s, and we arrived at that time. Um, my husband Pour, and I pouring into pour, pouring into Brooklyn as well, for what it's worth. Pouring into Brooklyn, right? <laughs> Down yes, the block from exactly. me. Exactly. <laughs> yes, I'm sure they. I'm sure. And and so, as you can imagine, just you know, Ben Gurion Airport was just packed with Russian Jews who were carrying only their suitcases. And so we, we came in at that critical time, and we met Mayor Ron Nachman, who had founded the city of Ariel, which is inside the area of Samaria, um, or the West Bank. It's 20% of the nation is Samaria. It's not a small little area. 
and he was the principal leader. He dropped two tents out of a helicopter and established that city. Um, it is the it is the ancient home of Joshua. Um, Joshua is buried right down the street with Caleb. Um, Joshua uh, had to have that city in his day, and Israel has to have that city in modern times. Not a th- single thing has changed. It is the high point. It's the waistline. It's the strategic security front um, and giving up the Sinai Peninsula, um, Ariel Sharon, sent Mayor Ron Nachman to establish that city. So it's become sort of the regional hub. It is where we shook hands together and agreed to build a national leadership site on those hills in Samaria. And um, today we've had more than 85,000 young Israelis come across the green line out of Tel Aviv who've never been into probably Samaria to see their biblical heritage sites and understand what's taking place there. Um, The content surrounds the biblical heritage um, on the life of Joshua, Caleb, Esther, David, Moses. Um, They're climbing on on big events, um, ropes courses, and challenging events like there's not another site like it in Israel today. So the IDF is training there, the Mossad, the special forces, um, all of the major youth movements in Israel are doing their leadership training at our site that we helped establish. It's Jewish run. There's about 35 uh, Jewish leaders in education that are uh, there running that site. Heather, tell me more, just because I'm the Democrat on the podcast, and and (laughs) tell me more about how you appeal to to Democratic members who typically, if it is uh, a pro-Israel movement program that mm-hmm. that kind of comes anywhere close to anything anybody could say is a Christian movement, they get very reflexive and like recoil. Yeah. And, yeah. and you know, I've come across it, um, but clearly that's not what you're trying to do here. How yeah. do you address that? How do you get Democrats who are, you know, uh, wary of this kind of thing how do you get them more comfortable and kind of cut through to the to the mission which is educational and you know apolitical in that regard yeah right well if you you know to go in again once again i bring this up to go into judea and samaria the west bank today is to see regular folk they get up and eat the same oatmeal that you're eating okay everybody wants to succeed everybody wants to prosper they want education for their children right so um, how important to really understand that and not dramatize it like they're not regular folk, um, that they've got, everybody's got some political agenda. They really don't. People get up and they're going to work and they just also happen to live in that area. So um, I think that's an important um, fact there. Education is so critical, obviously. And inside the state of Israel today, um, if you are a Democrat um, or, or a Jewish Democrat living, say, in Israel today, um, you would be very, very proud of your country, very proud of the way that they handle Palestinians. The Israelis handle Palestinians really, really well. Um, we have a lot of Arab Israelis training in that leadership site. For example, the Arab high schools out of Israel go there and they're training with Israelis. So everything in the education department of Israel today, the Ministry of Education, has a massive effort 
in bringing Arabs and Jews together, bring this, bringing the society together. And that is what that leadership site is intended to do as well, um, to coalesce around how do we build relationships, how do we grow into a new future, a new generation that can respect one another. Um, as a Christian, from my angle and my perspective, I can't think of a better way to to think about how to invest into the state of Israel than to put our money there. So we've raised a lot of money. I live in the United States. I'm not running the leadership site, but I am putting money there, and I'm bringing Christians and Jews to come and see and understand why that location is so important. It's the land of the biblical heritage. Down the street, Joshua and Caleb are buried. Shiloh is 10 minutes away where the Ark of the Covenant was for 365 years. Mount Gerizim, Mount Ebal, you can literally look out from the National Leadership Center. It's right there where J, um, uh, Joshua came in and renewed the covenant uh, with Israel. It is the cradle of civilization. It's the road of the patriarchs. Every um, altar that Abraham built was inside that area. So this is the area that Israel needs to see. The Arabs need to see it. The people that are involved inside the state of the Israel as citizens need to understand that. Heather, Senator Shelby appointed you also to the Middle East Partnership for Peace Advisory Board, uh, the Nita Lowy Fund. Uh, what kind of work is the board doing uh, right now? Uh, what, what are you doing on that? And uh, I think people would be surprised to, to learn that the, the bipartisan nature uh, of the advisory board, the way that the mm -hmm. appointments were worked out in, in the statute. Um, I'd just be curious, sort of, what's the direction right now? Are, are, do you, do mm -hmm. you think it's a good direction? Is it a worrisome direction? Is it a mixed bag? Like, how's, how's it going? I think that, first of all, I'm speaking on this interv interview as the director um, and founder of U.S. Israel Education Association, so I can't really speak for, for um, the Middle East Partnership for Peace, but I am serving as one of the 12 board members. Um, the... I think the aim um, and, and really the role of the board members is to advise on the use of the funding. So there's a $250 million aid fund um, to be used over five years. And what has changed, I believe, um, is that everybody agrees that there is a failed peace process. It doesn't matter who you talk to on the board of directors. The peace plan and the peace process between Palestinians and Israelis has failed. To keep trying to work with and continue to prop up a Palestinian authority um, through aid and funding is not the way to think about the future. So this MEPA fund is designed not to benefit the Palestinian Authority, explicitly written to go toward those projects that bring Palestinians and Israelis together. For example, um, if you've got a growing business movement between Palestinians and Israelis, then the aim would be to coalesce around putting resources toward um, technical training, right? For Palestinians, training for how to uh, run a business, um, training for women on job skills and how to enter the workforce. If you're say a Bedouin, you know, living inside the territories and you're gonna wanna go work uh, for an Israeli today, or you wanna work with an Israeli, how do you get to do that? Well, it's gonna be job training. So there's a lot of that interest inside the board today. Um, the idea of being able to get uh, 
um, certain, it's moving past dialogue because we've often thrown hundreds of millions of dollars toward dialogue for the sake of dialogue. Today, the MEPA board is a bit more fine-tuned and knows a lot of their history. I'm very impressed with the board members because um, with bipartisan support, there's that sense of how do we shift this toward being able to put things toward things that are going to go in and create a multi-generational change, like put it into building the workforce where they can work together. So Heather, we, we, we want to finish up our pod today with a couple of questions that are like a little bit more lighthearted in nature, um, okay. where we learn a little bit more about you. Don't worry. Otherwise known as the lightning round. Otherwise, Otherwise known, known as the lightning round. Um, so the first one, the first one we have today, other than your center, which clearly is your favorite place to visit in Israel. Yeah. Other than that, what is your second favorite place to visit in Israel and why? Well, I really, um, to be honest with you, I, um, of course, love Jerusalem and have to be there. So I stay in Jerusalem every single time. But one of my very favorite places to, to go is Mount Carmel. And I think it's um, a great place to take people because it is a to walk to go up to Mount Carmel where Elijah had his big showdown with the prophets of Baal. Um, is a huge point of reflection on where the world is today. And to um, understand the longevity of God's covenant with Israel, an eternal, unbreakable, you know, irrefutable um, covenant that would go on and endure for all of eternity. And, you know, you wouldn't need prophets if you didn't have a covenant. You could just sort of take the Tanakh, the Old Testament, and rip out the, all the prophets and just say, well, we don't need them if there was no eternal covenant. The prophets came because God had a continuum with Israel, and he would come in. It wasn't a great thing to have a prophet come walking up to you. You know what I'm saying? You know, that a prophet was in town was not a great thing. So Elijah was profound in his ability, in his being animated by God's spirit to turn Israel back to God. And I think that it, would, it is a point, a reflexive point for everybody that I take there to see what Elijah did and how God himself worked through one of the prophets to overturn the, the, the powerful um, idols of Baal and to set the nation back up for success. Okay, another lightning round question. Coolest person you've ever taken to Israel? Hmm. Well, I would I would like to say that um, two of my favorite members of Congress that I've taken, one is Steve Scalise. And um, I don't know if you remember when he was shot um, at that baseball game, but he had just come to Israel prior to being shot. And just to meet him before and to be able to bring him in to see the strategic security front of Israel inside the West Bank, to understand um, the U.S.-Israel relationship at a different level, and then for him to go through that enormous tragedy, is you will meet a new Steve Scalise today, a man whose heart yearns and seeks heart after God and really is leading the country in such a unique and special way. He is a unifying person. He cares about the future, 
And um, he's certainly one of those people that I admire for all that he's gone through. Um, and I think that we've brought a lot of special members of Congress, Kathy McMorris Rogers, who's one of my best friends, who is the ranking member on the, um, the House Energy and Commerce Committee. And she plays a significant role, um, um, obviously, with the Energy and Commerce leading the way on trade, leading the way with the Abraham Accord Nations. And so a lot of those members on that committee we've been able to take. Um, those are some of the, the key people that I've enjoyed um, bringing. How about General Charles Krulak, uh, the four-star Marine general um, who's Jewish, and he was he serves on my board of directors. He was the former 31st Commandant of the Marine Corps to take him and to take him into um, Judea and Samaria, to the West Bank, Hebron, to meet the Palestinians and Israelis, and to watch his heart just double over um, with an understanding. And, and, of course, and, of course, Bruce Pearl also on your board, uh, yes. a, a recent guest here on the podcast. Yes, and Bruce Pearl is like no other. By the way, who is like Bruce Pearl? No, exactly. Nobody, nobody. And uh, by the way, what a gift that Jared Bernstein was off that week that, that we interviewed him. So I had my own one-on-one -on -one time with Bruce Pearl. I went one-on-one -on -one with the coach. I'm so glad. I'm not sure if it was one-on-one -on -one or if it was more like playing horse, but it, but it was good. Right. It was good, yeah. Okay. Uh, Heather, last question. What is your favorite place to eat in Israel? Wow. Okay. Wow. You know, we have a lot of people that we work with, and a lot of our friends are running the running restaurants. So I want to be careful, but um, I I love the Mamilla rooftop, and to go on top of the Mamilla Hotel is to look out and see the walls of Jerusalem at sunset, and to enjoy their great wine, to enjoy their great Israeli Mediterranean food. Probably one of my best spots. I think that's an excellent choice. I I will endorse that. Heather Johnson, thank you so much for joining us on yep. the podcast today. It was a pleasure having you on. You too. Good to see both of you. Thank you so much. If you like the show, help us get the word out to other people. Subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And most importantly, tell your friends because it's the best recommendation we can get. Until next time, this is Limited Liability Podcast. Thanks for listening.